hearts and our hearts around this reality that Jesus took our place. He fully and completely satisfied your demands. He robed us in his righteousness. And his blood speaks for us now, once and for all. Thank you for the privilege of being part of your church. And as we've reminded ourselves of these truths now in song, uh, may your Holy Spirit now take the word of God and, and teach us through the word that we would walk in the will of God. Take this incredible epistle of Hebrews and help us to learn it and to grow through it and to become more established as your people because of it. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was thinking about another day and another time uh, years ago when our church office was located down in downtown Charlestown off of uh, Washington on the corner of Washington and Lawrence Street there. And um, once in a while, um, I would grab an armful of big books with small print, my commentaries, and, and I would walk up the street and I would go to the Charlestown Public Library and uh, just to change the venue, just to have a, a different place to study, and I would settle in and decide that I was going to accomplish a lot of study that day, and I was going to read and study God's Word, and, and then out of the corner of my eye, I would see those stacks, and I would take a walk, and about an hour and a half later, after I was well-read on oh, how to build a log cabin from scratch, or all of the weapons used in the Civil War, or whatever it was that had caught my eye, I would say to myself, I better dig in uh, to my books. You know, when we turn to the library of the New Testament, it's often easy to get distracted in some other book besides the book of Hebrews. I invite you to turn there this morning. We're launching a brand new series uh, it's called the epistle to the Hebrews. Don't let that word epistle bother you. It, it basically just understand it to mean a letter. It was a letter written to an audience. It was read by a group. Um, interestingly enough, as we turn to the book of Hebrews and as you position your notes, um, it is interesting to note that in Hebrews, we don't know exactly who the author is and we don't know really uh, who the recipients are. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I need to tell you one other thing about our series as we get going here. And today it is our purpose, uh, before we conclude our service with communion time, it is our purpose to lay a foundation in this new study. And I, I trust that you'll commit uh, to being here and benefit from it. But I, I've had a letter left on my desk that I wanted to share with you that's pertaining to our study here today. Um, I don't know who wrote it. It says this, it, it says, we, the undersigned Fellowship Bible quiz team members, would like to respectfully ask that when you preach from Hebrews, that you would use the New King James Version rather than the English Standard Version. You know, it's my practice to preach out of the ESV. Uh, they go on to say, we use the New King James Version for our memorization and quoting in the quiz competitions. While we know that this may be a little unusual, we hope that you can oblige us due to the potential confusion of hearing these passages preached in one version and having to quote and quiz on it in another. And then they put lines on their paper and then 36 of our junior high and high school teenagers signed it that I might oblige them by preaching out of the New King James translation. Now, I'm not sure who wrote it. Uh, maybe some young man whose father is an attorney or something. <laughs> Um, somebody felt a little bit bad about it, I think, because they added in their handwriting, and 
and we are very excited that you are preaching on Hebrews. Um, now, I don't know if you're excited that I'm preaching on Hebrews, but I thought it was absolutely commendable that a group of junior high and high school teens, 36 of them, three dozen of them in our church, would care about what the pastor's preaching on, and that they would care enough that with their memorization, and how commendable that we have 36 or so teenagers memorizing the entire book of Hebrews. And in fact, we will hear from them in the weeks ahead, as we'll, ha- we'll give them opportunity um, to perhaps quote our text as we head into our sermon from week to week. Um, but I just thought, you know what, I would oblige them. And uh, so I do have my New King James Version, and I wanted you to know that today, that, that this series out of the book of Hebrews. I will not be using our ESV text, but I will be using the New King James. And so those of you who are uh, electronically hooked up to your Bible today, you can switch that out in a hurry. Others of you, you have a New King James at home that you can bring with you, or it gives you an opportunity to buy yet another copy of God's Word. Uh, And uh, it is still a number one bestseller uh, most times, I think. But I wanted you to know that. And young people, uh, how pleased I am that you're memorizing Hebrews. And uh, I, th- I thought it was great that you felt free to ask me to do that. And indeed, I will. Let's go back to our library illustration for just a minute. And, and maybe you know what it's like, like I do, to be in someone's home or family room or see their bookcase or be in the library. And you're looking through the stacks or you're looking through the shelves and you see a volume, and you pull it down, and you open it, and you look, and you're just going to kind of thumb through for a minute and, and see if you can pick up on some of the highlights. You might look at the table of contents, the index, and, and look a little bit at what's happening. You might read the back cover, the intro, and you thumb through. And that's what I'd like us to do now with Hebrews as we introduce this new series with our Bibles in hand and our notes nearby, if you find them helpful, and your pen in your hand. I want us to just kind of thumb through as though we're picking it up for the first time. And the first thing I'd like to do as we lay a foundation for our study is I would like to speak to expectations. What, what, would, what should we expect out of this new study of the book of Hebrews? It is our practice to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we spent a number of years through Matthew. We did Jonah in six weeks this past summer. We did some topical sermons out of the book of Proverbs this fall. And um, now we're going to settle in again to a longer study. I'm not going to make predictions how long we'll be in Hebrews. I just ask for you to pray with me that God will use it in our lives. Uh, Let's talk about those expectations. What should we expect from our study of Hebrews? The first thing I want you to notice as we turn to chapter 5, as we just pick it up and thumb through a little bit and our eyes fall on the pages and we pick up some of the highlights, in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, uh, the first thing I want us to see is that we should expect the maturing of our church. As we study Hebrews together, we should expect that it will grow us and mature us. Look what he says in chapter 5 to the audience. Now, I've already referenced that we don't know who the writer is. There's a lot of speculation. Um, it, It was no doubt apostolic or if not apostolic, someone who was very close to one of the apostles. We do know that as the canon of scripture came together and, and the copies of God's word were identified and the writers were put together, their works were put together that form our Bible. We know that the early church would only receive as the word of God from the apostles or someone very, very close to the apostles. What we do know in this writing as we read through, we're going to recognize that though we don't know who the author is, no one does. It was lost in the early church. 
um, who wrote it. We really don't even know who received it, other than the title gives it away, the, the epistle or the letter to the Hebrews. That means that they were Jewish people. We're going to recognize as we read through and, and highlight it even today, we're going to recognize that there was a close relationship with the author and the recipients. The writer of Hebrews knew his audience, and his audience knew the writer, and they knew their topic. A lot of Hebrews is difficult for us because we don't think like Jewish people. And it was written to Jewish people. But as the writer writes here in chapter 5, I want you to let your eyes fall to verse 11 where we're picking up the end of a sentence. Notice what he says to them. Of whom we have much to say, speaking of Christ. And it's hard to explain. In other words, the writer's telling the, the recipients... What I have to tell you is a little bit difficult to explain. He goes on to say, and the reason it's hard to explain is since you have become dull of hearing. You have become dull of hearing, and and so it's hard for me to explain to you everything. He goes on in verse 12, and he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, and the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Isn't that interesting? So we recognize right away that he knew that somewhere along the line, as they had been led to Christ out of Judaism and into following Christ, that they had been taught the fundamentals of the faith. That someone, perhaps this very writer, had been with them, had taught them, but he's telling them, I want to explain many things to you, but you're dull of hearing, and the reason you're dull of hearing is because though you ought to be teachers by this time, Someone has to start over and teach the basics to you, these principles, basic principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone, verse 13, who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or maturity, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. But you have not been exercising uh, and having discernment, you have been not exercising discernment or your senses, your spiritual senses, so you've atrophied, you haven't grown. I mean, that's kind of an affront, isn't it? I, I want to come to you and I want to teach you, but I'm telling you I have to approach you as babes who need milk of the word. And you know, I think though he knew his audience, he knows us. He knows Fellowship Bible Church. I'm afraid that, that if the writer were here today and we were the recipients of his ministry, that he would have to say a similar thing to us. How many of us know anything about Hebrews? How many of us know anything about the role of the priest and the high priest and what he did and how he did it? And, and the book is filled with that. It is laced with all of the practices of Mosaic and Levitical law and worship practice. And he's equating that now, and he's going he's to point them to Christ, and he's going to use the high priest of the Old Testament to show them the high priestly role of Christ in the New Testament. But he says, I have to come to you as babes. See, this book of Hebrews is meat, it's not milk. It's meat, it's not milk. And you know, spiritual growth and development and maturity... It's intentional. It's not incidental in any way. You like meat, don't you? We've got some nice uh, 
beef cuts in the freezer. Uh, I'm looking forward to not in the two, not too distant future, Janet will get them out and thaw them and she'll say, why don't you get the grill going tonight and we'll have some steaks. Well, that's a good night, isn't it? We use charcoal grill. It'd be out there in the snow on the sidewalk and fire it up, put those steaks on there. It's going to be a good supper, steak, baked potato, tossed salad. It's going to be a good supper. And that's a lot better, isn't it, than when you come home and your wife looks at you and says, babe, we're going to have milk for supper tonight. Uh, Do you remember that I don't drink milk? I worked on a dairy farm. I don't do milk. I'm my cereal. That's it. You know, meat is a good thing. And so... As a church, let's embrace this study as leading us off of milk and into the meat of the word. And I think what we can expect, we can expect the maturing of our church through the study of Hebrews. Secondly, I want you to see as we continue this book we've picked up off the shelf. Huh, what is this? The book of Hebrews. And we're turning pages and we're thumbing through and we're trying to catch with our eyes some of the highlights. We're going to recognize that we should expect the warning against spiritual drift. We're going to expect the warning in this book. There are warning passages in this book. There are at least five specific warning passages. The writer, knowing his recipients, is warning them of spiritual drift. Now, there's a couple reasons why. Let's look at chapter two. We've thumbed through, we've opened, and now we're back. You know, you thumb back and forth, don't you? So we've looked at five. Now we're in chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must give the more... Excuse me. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away, he says. Lest we drift away. He says, I want you to give earnest heeding to the things that you've heard, lest you drift away. Now, what's he talking about? All right, so let's go back to the context. We don't know when this was written either, by the way. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know to whom it was written other than Jewish Hebrew believers and some non-believers were included because he's going to address issues for non-believers in this book as well. They were somewhere far away from the writer. He sends them this letter. We don't know when. The book is filled, as I referenced, with teachings and, and the vernacular and the language of Mosaic and Levitical practices of Judaism So what's he talking about this spiritual drift? He knows his audience. So you have to understand that they were raised up and they were raised up in the Old Testament, but now they've been introduced to Christ. And those who were practicers of Levitical law, careful to follow Mosaic teachings, they have now become followers of Christ, but left to themselves, they haven't matured, and the writer is now concerned that they will drift away from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ and fall back into some of the things that they've been taught. You know, it's difficult to leave things that you've been raised up in. It's very difficult when you've been taught something by your granddad and by your father, and you've been taught it since a child, and you've been taught that it's true. And then you're an adult and somebody comes along and they introduce you to a whole new concept and you embrace it. You know, that's hard on your family. That's hard on your neighborhood. That's just hard on you. Because think about it. In Judaism, they embraced and believed the Old Testament. They believed in Yahweh God. They believed in Abraham and Moses. They read the Psalms. In fact, an example of scripture would be Saul of Tarsus. 
Remember, he was a missionary of destruction before he came to know Christ. He said of himself in his own testimony in Philippians and in Acts that he was, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. In keeping the law, there was no one who could keep the law like he could. In fact, it is likely that he had by memory the entire Pentateuch and the Psalms and much of the historical books. He would have known it. He would have been an expert in the law. He would have been an expert on the religious calendar of the day and all of the feasts and all of the sacrifices and what every symbol meant. And he prided himself in the, in the perfection of the keeping of the law, but the law can't save, can it? And the law really teaches us that we're incomplete and you can never keep the law in its fullness, that only Christ kept the law. But where do we meet Saul of Tarsus? Early in the book of Acts, he's holding the coats and giving approval to one of the first martyrs of the church as the men take their coats off and Saul is their leader and he holds their coats and he gives approval as they pick up rocks and bricks and they bash in the brains of Stephen, the, the evangelist. He's preaching and they interrupt his message by bashing his brains out in front of him. And Saul says, way to go, boys way to go. So you see what's happening here. The writer knows that these Hebrew believers have embraced a whole new system. It's a freedom from the law. They no longer observe the religious calendar of Judaism. They no longer observe the feast days in the same way that they used to. They now have a fullness and a freedom and a completeness in Jesus Christ who went to the cross and once for all was the final sacrifice. And now they're off living in a faraway place. Some think maybe near Rome based on some references in the book. And the writer could have been writing from any number of places and they're far away and, and he wants them to know, be faithful, don't fall away. You need to give earnest heed, he says in verse 1, to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The things they have heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the apostles. Don't give up. And so as we study the book of Hebrews, one of the things that it will do is it will encourage us to never, ever give up on Jesus. But there's another way that we drift, isn't there? His warning against spiritual drift is seen again as we thumb through. Our eyes fall on chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Look what he says. He says, Beware, brethren, Hebrews 3, 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Lest there be in me or any of us an evil heart that would lead to unbelief and a departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So our author is, yes, in con he's concerned about a falling away of pure and sincere devotion to Christ and going back to the old ways, the ways that they were raised. In fact, on that point, let me add just a little bit more before I re remind us of Further on this point, Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary, he says, when you consider the intense persecution Jewish Christians were going through at this time, it is easy to appreciate the difficulties and temptations they faced. The high priest Ananias was especially hard and unrelenting. He had all the Christian Jews automatically banished from holy places. That was tough. 
all their lives they had had access to these sacred places. Now they could have no part in the God-ordained services. They were now considered unclean. They could not go to the synagogue, much less the temple. They could not offer any sacrifices. They could not communicate with the priests. They could have nothing to do with their own people. They were cut off from their own society for clinging to Jesus as the Messiah. They were banished from almost every sacred thing they had ever known. And so he was worried that they would drift back into the old way because it was hard to leave it. But here in chapter 3, verse 12, he warns them to beware of an evil heart that leads to unbelief, that leads to the departing from the living God. But exhort one another. One of our tasks as the church is to encourage and exhort one another while it is today, while we still have time, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We could have testimony time right now, couldn't we? The deceitfulness of sin that hardens our heart, that causes spiritual drift. We know about that, don't we? And his audience knew about it. And so he's concerned that they not drift away from the things they have been taught, the newness of life in Christ, and concerned that they not drift into sinful patterns because of the deceitfulness of sin itself. Well, we're flipping through, and we also let our eyes fall in chapter 4 and uh, verse 12. And something else that we would want to expect out of this study is the convicting of the Word of God, the maturing of our church, the warning against spiritual drift, the convicting of the Word of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 12, and these will be some of the familiar verses in Hebrews that some of you will have known or memorized in earlier years. He says, For the Word of God is living, and it is powerful. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In fact, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. One of the things he's reminding the Hebrew believers is to let the word of God do its work. Let the sword of the word of God come and penetrate deep and show them who they really are because... God sees us as though we're wide open and naked and he knows what we are and so he wants the word of God to work in them and do its perfect work. And don't you want that? Don't you look for, I don't know what you think about when you walk into church. I mean, you've been out to dinner last night, you've been at the ball games, you've been trying to do work, you, you have so much time, little time to do things and you're fussing around and then you stay up too late watching a movie and then you get up and you got to get a cup of coffee and then you're running late to get in here and, and then you get another cup of coffee and you're coming in and you sit down and they're singing some song that you don't know the melody to and, and well, well, the words are pretty good, but anyway, I don't know how many violins are playing and then the guy gets up and starts preaching and have you come expecting the word of God to do its work? It's easy not to. It's easy to just live this distracted life. But don't you love it when you come in and the music and the fellowship prepares your heart and there's a song or words that, oh man, I needed to hear that this morning. And and then as we study the word of God together, and it even happens to me, even though I'm the mouthpiece and the word of God is just rich that day. And the, and the word of God comes into my life and it challenges my heart and it renews my mind and it, it motivates me for another week. I need that. That's what we're going to look for in this study on Hebrews, that the word of God would convict us. It would do its convicting work in the word. 
Another thing, and we're in chapter 4, and our eyes keep going down, and we see uh, verse 14 through 16, is that we can expect here that our study in Hebrews will work to the end of, of drawing us near to Christ for help. The drawing near to Christ for help. We read on chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and that high priest is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's worried about that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That we may obtain mercy and find help in a time of need. And that's all, that's every day, isn't it? How often do we need help? How often do we struggle? How often do we need problems solved? All the time, every day. What do we do? What do you do? Punch the drywall? What do you do? Swear, throw things? What are we going to do to solve our problems? What are we going to do to find help in a time of need? Life is not easy. We always think by next Thursday it's going to get better, and then next Thursday has another whole set of problems. And what do we do? And the writer of Hebrews says, I know you struggle. I know you have needs. I know there are problems. Let me invite you to run to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't slip away from him. Run to him. Now notice what he says. So we don't have a high priest. See, they would have known. They would have had a picture in their mind immediately of who the high priest was and what his role was and what it looked like at the temple when he functioned in this capacity as the high priest and what he was doing. And he was a guy that you couldn't get near and you couldn't touch. And the writer says to them, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. He's not way up there. No, we have a high priest. He's already defined him as Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have a high priest who was in all points tempted or tested as we are. And yet he reminds us he was sinless. He did not sin. Now, that does not mean that Jesus experienced the temptation of every single sin that could possibly approach a person. It means that in his flesh, as he lived on the earth, he could not have experienced the temptation because you would say, they didn't even have this sin that I'm dealing with back then. No, but he knows what it is in his flesh for the appeal of sin to be present in every kind of category and appeal to our appetites of sin that we can experience. There is no category of sinfulness that our Lord couldn't relate to categorically. And yet, without sin, he says. And then he goes on and he tells them, Therefore, let us come boldly to such a one, this throne of grace. Don't be afraid of this high priest. Run to this high priest. Early on in our study, we're going to see that he calls himself our big brother. It's one of the titles of the Lord Jesus. Did you know that? That's in Hebrews. He's our big brother, our older brother. And we're younger brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, come boldly to his throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and we'll find grace and help in a time of need. I don't need to kick in the drywall. I don't need to throw rocks at your neighbor's house. You don't need to swear. 
You don't need to pull your hair out. You need to run to Christ. What does that look like? The Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews was encouraging his recipients, learn how to go to your great high priest, this Lord Jesus, who is so accessible to us. I want to learn that better, don't you? I want to learn how to run to Christ with my problems. So not only the convicting of the word of God, but drawing, the drawing near to Christ for help. We also find, and let's turn to chapter 10 as we thumb through this book, that we would expect in our study the preparing of ourselves for suffering. The preparing of ourselves for suffering. Notice what he says in chapter 10, verse 32. The writer says to them, and remember, continually remember what I said. The writer and the recipients understood each other at a high level. They knew what they were thinking. But recall, he says, verse 32, the former days in which after you were illuminated, that means when you came to Christ, when you realized that Christ was the fulfillment of the law, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains. So there was a point in time when the Hebrew believers had ministered to the writer of Hebrews who was locked up on account of the gospel. These kinds of testimonies lead people to believe it might have been the Apostle Paul who wrote. And yet the literary style of this epistle is so different from him and all of his other letters that others say, no, it couldn't have been Paul. But he was locked up in chains, he says. For you had compassion, verse 34, on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. How many of us could raise our hand and say that? Hey, I really enjoyed the plundering of my goods today. And let me remind you what I already read from Dr. MacArthur's, the intense persecution of Jewish Christians was largely from Ananias and the high priest and others. When you left Judaism on which you had been raised up in, you lost all of your rights, as I read earlier. You couldn't even go be with them. Even family members would reject you. Some of you might even experience that. You've been raised up in a system, and your pops and your mom and your dad have taught it to you, and now you've embraced Christ, and they say, you're not welcome at our dinner table anymore. On occasion, that happens. That's what happened to these Jewish believers. They walked away from Judaism. They followed after Christ and they lost everything they had. And they even, like the Apostle Paul or Saul at Tarsus, plundered their goods, took away their right to own shops and to do business. And so they even scattered under this kind of persecution. And so Hebrews is written to a group of people who've been persecuted and they know what it is to be troubled and they know what it is to have their goods plundered. And the writer knows that, and he's writing to encourage them to still not give up on Christ in the middle of all that. Let's finish reading here just a minute. The plundering of your goods, halfway through verse 34, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't give up on Christ, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive his promise. Endure in persecution. Endure in hardship. That's why he's writing to them. I think that's a lesson that the church today needs to be prepared for. 
More and more, there are distinctives of our ministry and distinctives of our holding to the Word of God that will sooner or later be absolutely not allowed to be stated publicly without retribution, serious retribution. And they knew what that was. But if you turn to chapter 12, I want you to see that there was yet another kind of suffering. So that was from within, you might say. They were suffering from the Judaizers who did not want to see them follow Christ. But in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, look what he says. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. In preparing ourselves for suffering, he's going to hold up the Lord Jesus Christ himself who suffered from sinners. And he endured that kind of suffering. And and he says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, have you? So we have people from within who might attack us for following Christ, maybe even family members, but on the outside at this time, and I said, we don't even know when this was written, Based upon the internal evidence of the book, they still were talking a lot. In this book, there's a lot of talk about the priests and the role of the priests and the high priests. It is, it is likely that the temple must have still been functioning. There's no reference that they were no longer functioning like that. But in 70 AD, the Romans tore down the temple. Persecution began in the, in the 60 ADs. This book was likely likely written sometime between 65 AD and 70 AD, a window of time when persecution in the early church began, a window of time when Paul and Peter were martyred, a time when they were persecuted by Rome, when they wouldn't pinch incense and pledge allegiance to Caesar, and they'd get their head cut off or be thrown into an arena for the lions to eat. So these recipients of this word that we're going to study together, these precious Hebrew believers, they received persecution from the Judaizers for following Christ, and they received persecution from the sinful world around them for following Christ. And he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Well, we must quickly finish out our list. We're going to see as we continue to thumb, and we're at chapter 11, and your eyes are right there. We're going to see that we're going to have the strengthening of our resolve to live by faith. The strengthening of our resolve to live by faith in our study of Hebrews. Oh, chapter 11 is the great faith hall of fame, isn't it? And in fact, it's interesting. I've preached messages out of Hebrews 11. Other than that, I basically never preached out of Hebrews. I clicked on to check some of my buddies out and check their sermon archives. When did they preach through the book of Hebrews? How did they handle it? Oh, yeah. They did a series out of Hebrews 11. That's it. And they found another book to read in the library. Hebrews 11 is a wonderful chapter, and we're going to be so encouraged when we get there. It's going to teach us how to live by faith. You see, the Christian life is a life that must be lived by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can live it. Notice what he says very quickly. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. By faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham. 
Verse 20, by faith Isaac. 21, by faith Jacob. 22, by faith Joseph. 23, by faith Moses. 24, by faith Moses. 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled. 31, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. 32, and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and so on. I want to be like these people. I want to know how to live by that kind of faith, that unwavering confidence in the word of God. That's what Hebrews will do for us. What can we expect? What's our expectation? It's the maturing of our church. It's the warning against spiritual drift. It's the convicting of the word of God. It's the drawing near to Christ for help. It's the preparing of ourselves for suffering. It's the strengthening of our resolve to live by faith. And finally, 12.2, it's the fixing of our eyes on Christ. Hebrews is going to lift up Christ. And he says in chapter 2 of verse 12, chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus the author, the perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what he's going to say. Let's quickly just note a couple of things and we lead now to the Lord's table. I want to warn you, though there's wonderful expectation in this study, that there is a call out for us for concentration in our study. It's not an easy book to study. I'm warning you. It's why we haven't done it before. And I'm 58 years old, and I'm afraid that if I don't do this in Romans, I'm going to be embarrassed to go to heaven and meet the writers. So you preached all those years, and you never preached my book? Come on, man. So I better start now, because it's going to take me 12 years to preach Hebrews and Romans. (laughs) But it's a hard book. It's a hard book, partly because there's an unpredictable pattern, an unpredictable pattern. It's not like the other epistles where the writer introduces himself and and you know the audience and he lays a foundation of clear Bible doctrinal teaching and then he applies it to our Christian life and he kind of follows that pattern. It's not like that. And here the the writer will scramble exposition with exhortation. It's also an unfamiliar culture practice and terminology that I've already mentioned. There's temple ritual. There's the Levitical priesthood. There's the order of Melchizedek. There's the role of the high priest. There's the religious calendar. There's the keeping of feasts. There's all of the details of the sacrifices. And his readers understood exactly what he was talking about. We don't. One writer has said that if you're going to understand Hebrews, then you must understand Leviticus. When's the last time you had your devotions in Leviticus, eh? You see, Hebrews is so very Jewish. It's so Jewish that it's hard for us. But it's God's word and we need it. I want you to know, though, that Hebrews is a a lot about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I think one reason we don't have an author, we don't have an author introducing himself, telling us about himself, we don't have him identifying the audience, talking about the audience, is because all he talks about in the whole book is lifting up Jesus Christ. He doesn't even want his own name lifted up. It's all about Jesus. Hebrews is all about Jesus. The supremacy of Christ is the theme of Hebrews. The argument of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is preeminent and superior to everyone and everything. Let's go to Hebrews 1. 
and just read these four verses and notice. He says this, as he opens the book, it'll be our text for next week. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. In other words, this is the final word. There's no need for any more talk. This is the final word, his son Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the Son is the brightness of the Father's glory, and the express image of his person. You want to know God? Then know Jesus. He's the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Who? Jesus. Wait a minute. All of the blood that has flowed in the Old Testament never purged our sins. It was symbolic. It was a reminder of our need for purging. But he by himself, this supreme Jesus, by himself purged our sin, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And then he goes on to argue, and he's better than the angels, and he's better than Abraham, and he's better than Moses, and he's better than the law. He is supreme. It's all about Jesus. I love this word picture of Jesus sitting down when he was done, when he alone went to the cross and then he sat down because he was done. You know what? You remember when you were a boy, guys, especially more than girls, probably your pops gave you some work to do. Your dad told you to get some things done. He comes home and you're sitting there. Boy, what are you sitting down for? You got work to do. What are you sitting? You can't get your work done if you're sitting. No, I'm done. I'm all done. When you're done, you can sit down. And you know what? The writer of Hebrews uses that word picture of somebody standing, working hard, standing, and somebody sitting. That's what he just said. And Jesus, when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in chapter 10, verse 10. And you can turn there. You still have your Bibles, and we lead into communion. Notice this word picture that he uses. He says in verse 10, Again, we're interrupting another thought, but he says, by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice the next three words, once for all. So by the will of God, through the body of Jesus on the cross, we have been sanctified or set apart from sin, forgiven from our sin once for all. Now notice what the word picture is that he goes back to in verse 11. And every priest, okay, the, re- the readers would have been able to picture the rituals of the priests of the Old Testament. We have a hard time doing that. He said, he said, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. When you read the Old Testament, it's over and over and over and over and over again. Those priests stand ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Notice the end of his sentence, which can never take away sin. They were to be pitied. But this man, capital letters, M-A-N, capital M-A-N, this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, separated from sin. (laughs) You see why we sing about the blood of Jesus speaks for me. We speak about being robed in the righteousness of Christ. 
Because this Lord Jesus isn't like an Old Testament priest scurrying around all day, every day, making sacrifices. No, he was once and for all done. When he went to the cross, he laid out himself as the ultimate sacrifice. The sin of the world comes upon him. And he said, it is finished. It is done. And we don't go back to the old ways. We run after Christ. And so we conclude our sermon today and our service time today with our heads bowed, holding a piece of broken bread that is a reminder of this once and done sacrifice. You do not have to be a member of the church to partake of communion. You need to be a member of the body of Christ. You need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The men will serve us. We'll hold it. We'll partake together as we bow our heads and we reflect upon this wonderful Lord Jesus who finished once for all, completed the work of atoning for our sin, and then he sat down, done. Praise God. Let's bow our heads, please.
I think you know the setting very well, don't you? That final Passover meal that had been prepared in that upper room where our Lord met with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed, beaten, and nailed to a cross. It was there that he gave last-minute instructions and illustrations to his disciples. He was there. He washed their feet, taught them about serving one another. There he took the bread and he broke it. He held it up as an illustration. And it says that that night that he was betrayed, he gave thanks then and he broke the bread and he said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake in remembrance of the finished work of Christ on the cross.
And so it was in the same manner that our Lord had taken the bread, that he then took the cup. And the words of our Lord that are recorded for us, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. The Apostle Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake together. Will you stand with me and let's close with a stanza of that great hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, and let's just reflect on the significance of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. <clears throat> My Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine. Father, would you help us to grow in that love and our commitment that we would never um, be tempted to turn away from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Thank you for the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our sin to the cross. Would you give us, Lord, a growing understanding of what it means to be your church, to be covered with the blood, to have the blood of Jesus speak for us. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We commit ourselves to you now as we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention and your patience. We do need to stack the chairs today. God bless you as you go.